0: Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four!
1: People do feel very radically different about gender experience.
0: I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism.
1: That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with.
0: Agenda with Women
2: in the Arts. You're listening to Agenda by Women in the Arts. I'm Katie Winton.
1: And I'm Isabel Holthob, and thanks to All The Best for another great episode. To listen back to more fantastic radio documentaries by All The Best, head to FBI Radio forward slash All The Best.
2: We did a whole three hours of International Women's Day programming on Wednesday. So by now we've fixed everything. We don't really need feminism anymore.
1: Uh, but coming off the back of International Women's Day, we're talking about the politics and privilege of a day without women. Um, and in about 10 minutes, we'll be joined by Rosie Fisher, Works performance curator to talk about the absolutely incredible
2: new show Middlesex. Do you say Middlesex or M-D-L-S-X because the spelling of it, it is, yeah, is it's it's without like all the M-D-L-L-
1: vowels. Yeah, so I think, I, I don't know, I think it's like subtract or pivot or something <laughs> like that where it's like you're just meant to know that to say it, but I think time will be the ultimate judge. Uh, but first though, we wanted to talk about A Day Without Women.
2: Maybe we should unpack the actual concept of a day without women. So it was organised by the same organisers of the Women's March on Washington, which was a protest that happened on January 21st this year following the Trump inauguration. So on Wednesday this week, just a few days ago, the idea was that women were meant to take a day off work, all wear red in solidarity if they couldn't take the day off work, and it was dubbed a day without women.
1: So let us know if you went on strike or if you picked up some of the domestic uh, duties or work duties while a woman or femme in your life did. Katie, do you, have you ever been on strike?
2: I've never actually been on a strike because I work in the arts and I don't get paid for about five jobs as it is. Also, I'm just terrified of being fired, to be honest.
1: Yeah, no, I I feel very much the same way. I have pretty precarious employment and I've never really wanted, I never felt comfortable not that you should feel comfortable striking it isn't inherently like you are taking on that risk but I've definitely felt that it was too much of a risk because I didn't have stable enough employment but I know once in high school I was allowed to leave school to attend like um, a protest against the war in Iraq because my parents wrote a note but I remember like having that kind of moral dilemma of being like should I jig or like if my if they don't let me should I just jig and I was like oh probably not how we're old were you I, think I was like Fifteen or something. So, yeah, I wasn't very tough. <laughs> but the organisers of the women's march posted three ways that you can get involved um, with the a day without women. So they suggested, or their three points were um, to take a day off for paid or unpaid labour, which I think is a really interesting kind of distinction. Um, and but also that they put those two things together because often unpaid labour and like domestic work is thought of as kind of not
2: work, which of course it is. Yeah, but I'm wondering how you take a day off as well, if you're a single mother or part, something that
1: becomes part of the. Um, the idea of men being a part of a day without mm. w- our women so it, it, to be an ally or to support women in this kind of political act you do the dishes pick up the kids or if that's maybe whether or not it's something you, you as a man or um and someone who doesn't identify as a woman if it's something that you don't necessarily do that's mm. something that you can do to kind of show support or solidarity so that was one thing you could do um another thing you could do is avoid shopping for one day um And uh, only shop at minority-owned businesses, with the exception of uh, or women-owned businesses. I thought that was like a really hard thing to kind of quantify or do. Um, And you could wear red in solidarity. And I think you saw a lot of people on TV wearing red. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I I meant to keep an eye out, but I didn't actually notice it on the day. But I did think that the first point it was, don't go to work. How did they phrase it? They said take the day off. And I just thought that that was quite tone deaf because. For in kind of Trump's America, which I do think was like where this kind of idea originated from and what this was working against, the kind of women who are most negatively affected by his presidency are also the kind of women that definitely can't take a day off work and they would be fired. And I think I had that similar response, my gut reaction, um, when A Day Without Migrants happened, I was like, it's migrants who have the most precarious working Um, security they are not the kind they are not the demographic people that can necessarily just take a day off Um, and so I thought that was like an interesting phrasing for an intersectional um, movement to presume or make seemingly make the assumption that you can take a day off work Um, but Because we did the um, International Women's Day ARVO section, we had to do a lot of research on the kind of origins of International Women's Day, and it is inherently a a labour movement, and so I think that that is kind of in line.
2: Yeah, well, we discovered that International Women's Day was the beginning of the Russian Revolution in 1917. It was a demonstration of women textile workers that went on strike to protest a livable wage and reasonable working hours, which led to... Just seven days later, actually, the emperor of Russia, Nicholas II, abdicating and the provisional government granting women the right to vote.
1: Yeah, so, so the system worked. Yeah, so
2: it was quite <laughs> an important movement in terms of a labour movement. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I think what's interesting about this day in particular and this movement is that it's white-collar women in traditionally unionised industries that are taking the day off from both paid and unpaid labour. And, of course, going on strike is a, a, is a huge risk and... Um, if you're unprotected and I think that's kind of what I was talking about before Um, because I've worked in in America in um, kind of fast food and like minimum wage jobs and it is predominantly women of color who work in those positions and in my experience your job is very insecure and if you're late your your boss can just fire you you're very unprotected and so I think that it's kind of it seems a bit strange to just be like, okay, let's all do this. And But what was interesting about the kind of rationale of taking a day off is that they are saying that for many women who are unable to strike, like mothers and members of vulnerable communities or healthcare workers who might be hurting women more than they're helping them by leaving work, mm. it's like those women are standing in solidarity with them and what they're kind of saying is we strike for them. It's not that every woman to show that they like care about this movement must strike. It's if you can strike you should for those particular women.
2: That can't. Yeah well this critique of the strike as being something that is quite a privileged movement has persisted and particularly mostly from conservative news outlets like CNN and Fox News but also from the left. There's been a lot of critique of the strike as being only accessible to women of privilege but I think what that does is obscure the conversation to be about a very individualistic notion of who you're striking for. So that kind of says, I'm striking for myself, but it misses the point of you might not necessarily be striking for yourself, as you were just saying, you might be striking for the women that probably can't afford to strike. Our patron saint, Rebecca Solnit, who coined the term mansplaining, who we defer to quite a lot (laughs) on this show, wrote an article on strike critiques and beating all meaning out of the word privilege, where she says, I can't tell you with certainty What will create the necessary momentum to defeat fascism? But I can tell you that what won't? A circular firing squad of movement critics.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting and like... I don't know, it kind of rings quite true for me, that circular firing squad of movement critics and how everything kind of gets shut down in its initial stage so you can't actually do anything. She goes on to say, I've come to agree with Mariam Kaba about the utility of the word privilege. When a word means everything, it means nothing. And when privilege means that going on strike is a crime against those who can't, I'm not sure I have any further use for it. Um, Which I think is a really interesting point within that kind of conversation about privilege because... On both sides of, of the media, both conservative and like more liberal commentators have been coming out saying that this is about privilege and it's for you know privileged people. Um, yeah, I did want to clarify, though, that privilege is a real... We're in no way saying that privilege doesn't exist. It is real and it's an enormous structural problem in a lot of feminist and civil rights movements. But I think it's been co-opted
2: by more conservative critics to shut down the entire conversation. Yeah, well, I guess what it says is... Like, what that argument kind of says is, if you have that privilege, you shouldn't do anything. Which yeah,
1: exactly. is just
2: really problematic in a lot of ways.
1: And I think, I mean... I don't know if you found that, but after International Women's Day, I was just like, oh, yes, so good. Like, we didn't do everything, but we did, like, a tiny little thing. And I was really disheartened by, like, maybe some women, a lot of people that were, like, mainly wanted to talk about the shortcomings. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess that's, like, with a lot of movements. Well, I mean,
2: yeah, it is very important to be critical, but it's also really important to recognise that just because maybe you're not able to solve feminism in one day doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a conversation about it or yeah, at least try and do something about it. Totally. Yeah. Anyway. Should we play some? Yes. <laughs> so coming up after this track, we're going to be talking to Carriage Works performance curator Rosie Fisher about the new show at Carriage Works called Middlesex, a powerful hymn to androgyny. The show has a pretty fantastic soundtrack, so we're going to be playing a few songs from that today. Um, coming up right now is a fantastic song called River. You're listening to Agenda on FBI.
0: To your river, I will come. To your river, I will come. To your river, come to your river. Wash my soul. I will come to your river. Wash my soul. I will come to your river. Wash my soul again. River, I will come to your river. I will come to your river. Come to your river, wash my soul. I will come come to your river, river. wash my soul. I will come to your river, wash my soul again.
1: That was River by Ebayi. You're listening to Agenda on FBI 94.5. We're joined now by Carriage Works performance curator Rosie Fisher to talk about the Australian premiere of Italian theatre
2: company Modus's
1: Middlesex. We've been saying Middlesex. It's
2: that's totally right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us Rosie. The theatre company Modus has a reputation for blurring boundaries of form and content. What kind of challenges or opportunities does executing a project like this in a space like Carriage Works present?
3: Well, we're pretty lucky. I, you guys probably know the spaces, mm-hmm. but they're pretty very much blank canvases. And so um, I think it's going to be really interesting. I was Luckily, I was just in Germany a couple of weeks ago and um, I saw some of the spaces. They've done the show twice there in two different spaces. One of them's really big and an old kind of classical um, Presennium March space and the other is like tiny. So I think... The thing with this work and what's kind of kind of pretty magical about it is that um, it's a very transportative work that can, and I think because she's such an incredible performer, that it's the only time actually I've ever watched a one-person show and you forget that you're watching one person. Or you know how sometimes you're still waiting for someone else to come on or you're, you're really aware they're doing a fantastic job and going, wow, you're doing all the roles in the Scottish play, you're incredible. But um, in this you just forget. I think it's because there's so many elements in the show in terms of the text, the home videos, and yeah, the whole show is very mysterious.
2: So you're trying to solve a lot of things while you're watching it. Yeah, what kind of things, like I was, so we've been doing a bit of research about it, obviously, and there's, you know, different elements like The performative element, the kind of lighting, the DJ, the... Can you talk us through some of the kind of aspects of the show? Yeah, totally. So she's
3: a DJ, but she's been working with this company for over 10 years and they're in an Italian dance theatre. That's kind of how we describe it in Australia. Sometimes they're called dance makers. Sometimes they're kind of in the box of theatre. But as this show is, all those things are so fluid now and changeable. So I've, like a disclaimer, I've never seen the show live. Um, Neil Armfield from Adelaide Festival saw the show at The Kitchen in New York and it had already been in existence for about a year and a half when he saw it and he was kind of completely blown away by the energy of Sylvia and the work and just kind of the visceral physical experience of the show. So I've only been lucky enough to see the show on a recording so I'm really excited to actually experience it with her. But um, even from the recording... um, I think if you've read Middlesex, Jeffrey Eugenides' book, has, have, have you guys read it? Yeah. You spent, or well, I spent ages the first time I watched it trying to work out which, which bits of the book, which bits are biography, and then you realise, but, but, you know, about a third of the way through that you're meant to do that, that part of the whole piece is an exploration of ambiguity and it's all intentional and you're supposed to be as kind of like... Taken down all these paths as you feel you are.
1: I was wondering about that relationship between the novel and the um, performance, if that's what you call it. Yeah. Um, so, for in Middlesex, there's this really kind of famous quote from it I was born twice, first as a baby girl on a remarkably smogless Detroit day in January of 1960, and then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near. Potoski, Michigan, in August of 1974, and then when I was looking at the trailer for this yeah. production, it says I was born one thing and then another.
3: I know I've been dealing with that exact. I was about to say to you, and I right. didn't, I didn't want to like spoil the end of the work because mm. um, some of the um, writing about the piece talks about that it's about change, and then what you take away from the piece is this whole thing of like you shouldn't be forced into some kind of biological gender when you're born, and that it's a choice, Mm. you have a choice and I think that's kind of, if that makes sense, how that works with the Middlesex quote Mm -hmm. but it's very very complicated because I think um, the piece is not a retelling, like they um, they take pieces, they've done Sophocles' um, Antigone that Sylvia was in as well and then after that they did a retelling of The Tempest and they're not really retellings they take the pieces and like a lot of you know, amazing makers do go. How do we make this relevant in 2017? And what are, what are we doing? But in a different way to the way someone like, say, Simon Stone would rewrite Chekhov or rewrite. You know, he's had big success with Yerma. It's about to tour internationally. Um, this work is very much it uses Middlesex as a blueprint or as a reference point because I think they've been working very closely with Sylvia for a long time and they, were, they found a lot of parallels in her life and just like weird coincidences like she was called Cal growing up, which is the oh, lead wow. character in Middlesex. Yeah, but Calderoni, her name. But she also, you know, it had a very hard time and there was always this question was she a girl or was she a boy and even when i read the new york times review ben brantley he said something like i was with a friend and they were at the production of the tempest and she said but what is she about Mm. sylvia Mm. and it's like this whole piece is basically saying why are you asking that question it's irrelevant
1: um yeah it's interesting that like jeffrey eugenides he's kind of looking back on texts like um herculean barbin and yeah like that doesn't quite capture or it doesn't enough capture the experience of uh, he's using the hermaphrodite yeah um and then just looking at what you've done with and modus has done with middlesex it's almost done that again and kind of completely further, which is really interesting and exciting.
3: In the writing, it's the most exciting thing thing about Middlesex as well is that he read that clinicalness and he wanted to find a humanity in that story. And then for ages, it it seems like he struggled with first person, third person, how he was going to do it. And then when the book finally came out, he was all these accusations so autobiographical and I think what he said in interviews is I was dealing with something that was so foreign and hard and I didn't want it to be like reportage and he didn't talk to other intersex people he he wasn't trying to portray something I think he was trying as daggy as it sounds to live something and I think to make it real for him that's why there's all the stuff about Detroit he grew up in Detroit Um, all the stuff about the um, Greek family that's all very close to him so in an he was personalizing it all in a really intense way just in a way um they shine a light on that motus with this middle sex Mm. and it was really weird because there's a line in the play that sylvia says and it's one that you're investigating and she says something about the green ray and i was like oh my god the green ray and i was like that's a line from Eugenides, and then i started researching because i'd read an interview because i did a work with tacita dean this incredible british artist and she spent ages in madagascar trying to film the green ray which you can only see for like a few seconds at sunrise or sunset it's really hard to film and she's her work very much is about coincidence and then when she was on a plane after spending months in this island trying to film with 16 millimeter film she saw it from the plane window when she was going to the toilet and actually pilots see it more than anyone else because they have this experience and um i knew that from an interview i'd read with her and jeffrey eugenides in bomb so i had this whole thing so everything it's like piece gives you so many clues back to other things and even the music like when you're listening to the music I was like I'm gonna ask them why they chose these songs and then you go well she was born in the early 80s this is kind of a
2: discography of her life but not in a really obvious way. I wanted to ask you about that relationship between her and Motus actually the the kind of progression of the show I don't know whether you know much about how they have been working together for, as you said, over 10 years, did she kind of come to this saying, I really identify with this story, here are all these songs that make sense to me, or was it more of a kind of situation of they identified it as something that she would be perfect for? Like, do you know much about that relationship? I think that what I've read
3: in interviews is that they wanted to make a work with her and a work about boundaries, because they talk about this work being a precursor to their next work, which is very much exploring, I think, the idea of boundaries in a bigger sense, considering everything that's happening in the world right now with, you know, people having nowhere Mm -hmm. to live and Mm -hmm. being turned away. Um, And so I would say very much that she probably selected the work, but when you see it, how all the pieces are positioned, because they're basically using the idea of sort of a DJ set to make a piece of theatre. So the whole thing is a a pushing out
2: of a DJ set, if you like. So there's there's a pretty fantastic uh, array of music that's in it. Yeah, we got so
1: excited watching, like looking at all the different, um, yeah. And how did
3: you feel when, did you listen to the Italian piece at all? No. No. Oh, there's
1: an Italian piece. And when you're in the
3: show, when you're watching it, you sort of go, oh, God, wow, and it's amazing because you do want some more cultural references back Mm. to her. And what I thought was really interesting, though, is they talked very much about how making a work about gender was very unusual and so important, and I was thinking, oh, gosh, we're so lucky in here in Australia and in Sydney particularly with a lot of artists actually, FBI, also FBI um, hosts like Nat Randall and Fran Barrett and Post Mm -hmm. and Adina Jacobs, not FBI, but and they're all making incredible work about exploring gender Mm. and so i was like we're pretty lucky yeah that that we we, get to have the reception of that the, the we're also the space that's happening mm. here. Yeah. yeah. And the show's running from the 16th to the, to the 18th. 18th. And also you'll be able to come to the party, which will be really fun because it's a co-party with Lady Eats Apple, which is also uh-huh. opening the back-to-back show. Amazing. And the, that cast is pretty excellent. So it should be a fun night. What's <laughs> happening for Lady Eats Apple? That's, that's opening the same night. Right, yeah. Right. So that's another. It'll be really... It's a incredible show Ooh. and the carriage works as a commissioner on that. So oh, yeah, fantastic. come you can do you could
2: do one night and then
3: come back the next
2: day. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um Resi, thank you so much for joining us My on pleasure. agenda today. Um we're gonna play a track now by the knife. The knife. This one is called One Hit it is also in the um Middlesex soundtrack.
1: You don't know <laughs> what exactly the re- the reasoning is for this one.
2: Well, it would be
3: giving too much away, but we- you guys are going to see the show, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Wait till you, yeah, wait till you see it. All of the songs of, yeah, have a very direct cool. reference.
1: So this is one hit by the knife.
4: I got a new store now, and it goes like this I took my hand out of my pocket, up came a fist It was headline news, one more abuse I've got to tell it with a fist And it goes like this
1: one hit by the knife from the Middlesex soundtrack that's happening at Carriage Works from the 16th of March to the 18th. Um, We'll pop up some details online for you on our agenda page in case you missed the conversation um, with the performance curator. We also have a winner of the double pass um, which we'll announce in a second. We also got a really lovely text um, from an anonymous listener joining so you can strike safely and with your workmates. International Women's Day for Celebrating the Fight continues every other day of the year, which is very, very nice. Anyway, the winner is...
2: Sharon Murray, congratulations. You've won two tickets to see Middlesex.
1: <laughs> We're going to leave you um, our last track, also off the Middlesex soundtrack. This is Despair by the Yeah, Yeah, Yes.
4: Oh, despair, you've always been there, you've always been there, you've always been there, you're there through my wasted years, through all my years.